Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, John Warren. You are the author of oh, I Lost It. Lead like a Marine, run towards a challenge, assemble your fire team, and win your next battle. And that comes out yesterday. So that's good. Good timing. Yeah, it's perfect timing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> before we get into the book and everything like that, tell me about uh, your upbringing and your service in the military, how you got there, why you decided to join all that stuff. Yeah, I grew up a very normal life in South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina in the upstate. Uh, very patriotic family. Both my grandfather served in World War II in the Pacific you know, spent Sunday afternoons watching, you know, war movie reruns on TBS and TNT and played a lot of basketball and um, was recruited for all the military academies and ironically told them all no, I wasn't interested in going into the military and then went to school and 9-11 uh, happened. And that's when I really felt called to go into the Marine Corps, wanted infantry and, and got that. And you enlisted? I went OCS, okay. so I came with uh, an officer, yeah, a green lieutenant that knew nothing, who was supposed to lead a platoon of Marines who just got back from Fallujah. Yeah, that's always been kind of an interesting dynamic in the military to me. I, I don't, I don't really understand the way that we do that, frankly. It's, it's definitely interesting. I think you, I think the lieutenants that keep their mouth shut the longest end up doing the best. Yeah, they definitely do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as a sergeant myself i would agree with that um it's funny i didn't know you were from uh, I'm, I'm also from greenville where did you go to high school wade hampton mm, i went to uh wren and then i transferred to malden when my family moved later on but yeah um, maverick yeah 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 the ugliest uniforms like brown and orange were the colors there it's ridiculous hey now, now you're in austin and you got the same colors at texas yeah i know it's the worst it's just the way <laughs> it follows me everywhere i go um so you're uh you're a uh a platoon leader, I guess, or did you? Do you guys call it platoon commander in the Marine Corps? I don't in, know. in the Marines, we're commanders. Okay, that's you got to follow the Navy. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> and what year did you? What, what year did you join? So I went in uh, 2004 and trained, and then deployed to uh, Ramadi, Iraq, in 2006. Okay, so six is a pretty hot year. Six, seven, and eight are probably the hottest years of the war. What was that first one like? You know, Ramadi, when we got there, it was just total anarchy. Um, it was very urban combat, you know, city of 400 to 600,000, all Sunnis. And um, we just changed up the tactics and just saw that the previous, I'm not faulting the other Marines, but the previous units tactics weren't working and we needed to try something new. And that's when we kind of got into the counterinsurgency was very controversial at the time. We we actually did a census of our entire area of operations. So for eight, the first eight weeks, we literally just went out on squad size missions, 13 guys with an interpreter. And we met with all of the inhabitants in the city, built this huge database. And then, you know, on the sides, you're fighting these insurgents, you're getting RPG, fighting IEDs. We had a huge attack that we talk about in the book on April 17th with about 50 to 100 Al-Qaeda operatives with uh, the centerpiece of that attack on one of our bases was this huge dump truck with a suicide bomber filled full of C4 
so we we had a lot of that and like the first two to three months it was kind of strange you're you're doing all these missions you're taking a ton of casualties you're not sure it's working and then months three four five we just started being able to develop so many human intelligence sources that just started telling us everything about al-qaeda and then it got really fun when we were just systematically removing those leaders and that was uh a seventh, you said seventh month deployment. Yeah. yeah, we went over in March of '06 and came back in November. How did you? Uh, how did you enjoy the the deployment? I guess that's a weird way, a weird question to ask, maybe for outsiders, but it makes sense to me. So hey, overall, it was the greatest seven months of my life. I mean, I loved it. Um, we talked offline. You know, the the hardest thing was the casualties. My platoon took one third Purple Hearts. Uh, we lost two in the company. Um, I think 18 in the battalion. So it was a tough fight, but uh, just leading Marines, getting to know my guys so well, trusting in them. I mean, Lima Company 3-8, we were just more of a family and um, it was just an amazing experience. I tell everyone combat is the purest form of living. You see the greatest forms of humans and you see the worst forms, but you don't really worry about any of the stupid stuff that we have to back in the States. It's just a pure very clarifying way of living. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly true. Uh, you get that. I think some civilians, you know, think you're insane when you say that, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, chaos tends to reduce, uh, your, uh, list of things you give a shit about. You know what I mean? Um, I, we, we've historically with regard to mental health have done quite a bit better as a society when we're busier or when we're just trying to stay alive. Right. I mean, people weren't necessarily worried about their feelings so much when, uh, you know, there were lions circled outside of their, their camp. You know what I mean? Was- yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you took away all the casualties, I think more problems came from people's problems back in the States coming to them via email or phone calls than problems in actual Ramadi. Sure. So- yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, then we, uh, what was the redeployment like for you guys? Cause that's uh that was a tough period. Tough, I guess, uh, isn't maybe that's not the right way, way to put it because Marines long for that sort of thing. Infantry people in general long for that kind of deployment to be able to go fuck shit up. You know what I mean? Um, but then you get back and I think there's such a misunderstanding of what, it, what exactly happens to us when we get back. People think that we have <clears throat> like a moral injury from the things we did or, any of that kind of stuff. Um, and then they try to, you know, coddle us like, Oh, it'll be okay. And all this horse shit. Uh, and they couldn't be farther away from the reality of that situation. You know what I mean? It, it, it is the dead space. When we come home, the lack of purpose, the lack of drive and the lack of stimulus that really fucks people up. Yeah. I mean, I think you see that too, when people transition out of the military, we, we talk about this in the book, you know, we really believe strongly in post-traumatic growth, and think that needs to be stressed more than the post-traumatic syndrome. Mm. And I think post-traumatic stress, but uh, I mean, PTSD is definitely real and people suffer from it, but it's not on the scale that everybody thinks. I mean, the numbers that they throw out are literally larger than the number of people that have seen combat. Yeah, And what people really suffer from is what you just hit hit the nail on was people suffer from a lack of purpose you know, it's the squad leader that goes to Ramadi. He's leading 12 people. He's impacting national security. He's in charge of millions of dollars of military gear 
impacting the world, literally. And then he comes home and the citizens say, hey, thanks for your service, but we don't really think you can, you don't really have the skill sets necessary to help our business. And they end up stacking, you know, stacking lines at Walmart. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that need to change. Sure. You know, one of the interesting things that have, that's happened since the wars have, have calmed down over the past half decade or so is that we now see um, <clears throat> a higher risk of suicide for active duty people that haven't deployed than we do for fucking inside of the active duty sphere. There are more people who have never deployed that are committing suicide than people who have deployed. Right. Like that. That's that's a fact. And it isn't. It isn't that the numbers have gone down either. As a matter of fact, this year, um, we there have been there uh, up until the end of June, there were more suicides than all of last year already, right? For active duty people, and it, again, it isn't the people that you think. It isn't the grisly old veteran that with ten deployments who's getting ready to get out of the military and they just don't see a future for themselves. It is young kids who have never even deployed. You know what I mean? So it's far more pervasive in our culture and it's far more difficult to correlate it with combat experience. That's why I think it's such a misnomer uh, that we that we associate it with. Um, oh, I got <clears throat> blown up a couple of times and I go home and that's why I killed myself. You know what I mean? That's just not the story. That's the story that you hear all the time, but that isn't the real story. Well, that's the easy narrative. That's the one they want to tell. They want that to be the case. I think it's kind of a bipartisan problem to where liberals feel like people that joined the military were either duped or stupid to do it or lied to or misled and they think they're victims you know some on the other side they're super appreciative of military vets so they want to provide extra stuff for them but giving them meds or giving them twenty thousand dollars a year for no job that doesn't help people so what veterans need are opportunities for solid careers not handouts Yeah, it is. um, We are defined by our purpose and our biological programming more than anything else, Um, regardless of what our present dopamine culture would have you believe with the quick hits and stuff like that. Like, oh, these this pill will help or this fucking session will help or whatever. We need to struggle. It's in our DNA to struggle. Right. That's why, you know in those moments of chaos, we feel so, and, and it's, it is a weird juxtaposition, but we feel so uh, alive and powerful and mentally fit during the worst periods. And it isn't until after that we start to struggle. And then when we get too comfortable, obviously, uh, especially people who have been exposed to that kind of extreme purpose, we feel useless, you know, and there's nothing, there's no worse feeling in my opinion than feeling useless, especially if you're a man. I think feeling useless as a man, not feeling like you have some purpose to provide and protect for some group, whether it's your community or your family, uh, that's probably the worst thing. And you juxtapose our feelings of uselessness and hopelessness with our relative comfort. And that's where the the imposter syndrome or the self-hatred really starts. Uh, we, we, we really, like, I've seen this in so many dudes. I've seen it myself where we really genuinely start to hate ourselves because we know we don't deserve the comfort we have right now. Quote, we, we know, I mean, we do deserve it because we worked hard for it, but <clears throat> you're in a relatively comfortable situation and you still feel 
useless. That's not a good, that, that makes it way worse, you know? Um, so when we coddle ourselves to recover and when we're coddled by others to recover with all this self-care fucking bullshit that people talk about these days, uh, in reality, what's re what, what actually repairs this is going back to purpose, right? That's what, that's what, uh, uh, gives you life again, I guess. And purpose for most people means serving others, not ourselves. You know what I mean? Um, it's why I like to say that, a lot of you. Yeah. That's exactly why the vast majority, I'm convinced the vast majority of vets go into the military, right? It's mm. not, it's not for the money. It's not to see the world. I mean, it's to have a positive impact on our country and our citizens and protect them. And then they come out and they don't have it. Like you said. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's the worst thing for somebody whose life, who, whose life in general, but then the most extreme part of their life and the part that had probably did the most for them, but also did the most damage to them, uh, was wrapped up in this purpose. And now that purpose is gone. Right. I mean, you see it in a, on a micro level when, a, when somebody who's spent the last 20 years playing baseball retires and they get up on stage and cry about their retirement, stuff like that. It's because they know that their identity is getting ready to change. And it's, that's a tough thing to do at 40 years old or however old you are at that time. It's a tough thing to do at any age. Um, <clears throat> but when it's, when your life has been defined by service and extreme purpose like that, that is, uh, there's no pill that's going to solve that problem. There's no amount of money that's going to solve that problem. There's no, uh, uh, there's no therapy session that's going to solve that problem. The only thing that will solve that problem is to find that person purpose again. That's the only thing that will work. And for me, I mean, I've found that through business. I, mm. I tried to interview, tried to get a lot of jobs and faced what a lot of veterans face, which is, hey, we appreciate your service, but we're not going to hire you. You have no experience in this industry, which I think is crazy, right? I mean, think about how would the army or Marines do if they hired people based on combat experience? No one has that before you go in. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just started my own company first, you know, first one I brought on board and convinced to come with me was my company gunnery sergeant who was a retired master sergeant with nine deployments, five combat went in for the Gulf war one and came out, you know, little after I did. And we built the company together. We hired a ton of vets. And we hired people based on their core values, not their their experience in the industry. And, you know, we grew that to a multi-billion dollar mortgage originator. Now today has over 350 employees. And that's that's how we found purpose. And we tried to bring people with our similar core values. And those are the people we wanted, not someone that had been some job hopper underwriter for nine other companies. <clears throat> and what was that? Uh explain that process because a lot of people you know it, we, we i think there is a, a an entrepreneurial spirit in the veteran community and there's been a lot of great examples of it over the years um some big some small you know and it's it's we, we are in an economy now where you can do um you don't have to settle for a nine to five cubicle job anymore you may have to you may have to hunker down there for a while and uh, pull some resources and shit, but you don't have to settle for things like that anymore. There's a lot out I there just, you can do. I think the opportunities for veterans is so vast. I believe in entrepreneurism so much. I think vets are naturally inclined for that. I mean, today, hey, go start a welding company by learning how to weld mm. or be a painter or be an electrician. I mean, these guys, 
you grow a business like that, you're a multimillionaire. I mean, it's an amazing lifestyle. You're able to give back. You're able to provide for your family. I mean, it's just, there's so many opportunities out there for people. I found it in finance. And that was mainly because my background, I had flipped a couple of real estate investment properties prior to going into the Marine Corps and real estate, you know, that was kind of the industry I knew outside of combat. Um, and what, how, what, what steps did you take? I mean, so what, let, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. You get out of the military, what year? I got out in 08, uh, June of 08 active duty. And then I got married in 09 and really was looking for opportunities after working with my brother's startup for just a little bit. And then literally started, Hey, I want to be in financial services. Like, okay. So start as a financial planner, you know, insurance sales, didn't want to do that. Then I got into wealth management and Hey, I don't like stocks, but I kind of like real estate and hedge funds. Like that interests me. And no one wanted to hire me for hedge funds because I was a politics major. So then my only option was real estate. I got amazing advice. I did this interview with Gerber Taylor. It's in the book. I met with uh, Gerber Taylor. It's a huge alternative asset investment fund um, in Memphis. I interviewed, they're all former military guys. They all tell me at the end of the meeting, hey, go back and get your MBA. We'll hire you immediately. And you can come do a summer internship. And then one of the the guys held me back, Bill Ryan. He goes, I want to talk to you offline. He was a former SEAL. And he said, hey, you need to go run towards real estate. And you need to go find something to do and make money in that industry because the market has just collapsed because of the financial mm -hmm. crisis. And he literally told me, most of the people in that industry are stupid. And he said, you will have unbelievable opportunity to ride the wave up and bypass all of these people. And that's what I did. So, you know, my wife, I tell everyone, she was my first angel investor because she was working at an insurance company in Atlanta and she was the only income we had coming in. And I spent half of my time networking and meeting with certain developers, real estate investors, lenders, and then half of my time like strategizing, hey, if I had money, what would I do? And I saw a real opportunity to provide lending to real estate investors because banks had gotten regulated out of that due to Dodd-Frank. Mm. And that was 20% of all the homes sold in America on average each year. It was a huge market. And I just went door to door pretty much raising capital. I started out at $50,000 clips. I remember taking my wife to an Italian restaurant in Atlanta, Preachy, to celebrate that I raised $100,000 because, hey, that could be potentially two loans, mm -hmm. right? And that was going to be two origination fees. And fast forward, you know, eight years later, we had, you know, we had exceeded over a billion dollars in originations. So we just started small and we made sure the loans that we originated were high quality performing loans. And we tried to provide the best customer service possible. And that's why I trusted so much in my company gunnery sergeant, John Thompson, who's the co-author of the book. He ran operations for me and it ran like a Marine infantry unit and we got the best service. Our loans performed and we just kept scaling and bringing on people that we wanted to work with. We had a Marine like culture, work mm -hmm. hard, play hard, be a family. And, uh, it was really an amazing run. We doubled every year, more than doubled every year. 
And uh, once you get into a position where you have some kind of, so you did you you started the business with uh, with your uh, gunnery sergeant, or he came in later? I I started it by myself because you know I didn't have any capital. Mm. I had no way to pay him. Um, we stayed in close contact, and when I could at least afford to pay him about 30% of what he was currently making. He came in as employee number two and he's co-founder and we grew the company from there, from me, my administrative assistant who actually made more than me. She made 32,500 and I made 30. Mm. And uh, we grew it from there and just kept adding people and scaling it and growing geographic area. We started lending in Atlanta and about four years later, we started getting into institutional funds, hedge funds who wanted to just give us as much money as we could originate. And before long, we were 44 states originating billions of dollars. And it was just an amazing run with incredible people. And uh, what what do you do um, once you realize that the business is going to be successful? Uh, managing our, our building manageable growth is a really that's a thing that's tough for a lot of people. Like they have a good idea and to get to 1 million in revenue is relatively, if you have a good idea, it's relatively easy unless you fuck up getting from one to 15 million. That's the trick, right? That's, that's, that's how, you know, you've got a business that's going to last for a while. So how, what, what's that like in the early part? Once you realize it's going to start being successful, what decisions did you start making there? Well, I think the main thing that I've seen, you know, we made a conscious effort from the beginning. We want to scale this thing. We want it to be big. And to do it, you've got to keep things simple and scalable to where we came up with systems to where if we originated a loan in Greenville, South Carolina, it was the exact same process and systems to originate a loan in Austin, Texas or Seattle, Washington. And we kept everything centrally located in Greenville except for our sales team. And that's how we grew it. And so we wanted to scale one and then the other thing that I see out of people is when you get to where you're making a million dollars a year as a company and you're the entrepreneur, you have to make a conscious decision. Am I going to reinvest in order to get bigger or am I going to run this as a lifestyle business? And I've seen so many people, hey, I'm making 500000 I'm going to buy a new house. I'm going to buy a boat. I might buy a second home. And they're not reinvesting in the company. And we did the opposite. We made, I think, $70,000 was the most I made in the first six years as CEO of a multi-million dollar finance company. And we kept investing and hiring people. There were multiple people that made more than the CEO because that was important to build that base of competence and quality people. And my thing was, I'm going to sell this at some point and the value is in the platform of the company. It's not going to be in the value of my salary. And one of the things I'm most proud of, seven people were made millionaires when we sold that company. Yeah, that's good. So we have, in addition to our media company here, we own a booze company called Hard AF Seltzer. And currently zero people are on the payroll there because it's all founders who who are doing all the work. Uh, and we plan on keeping it. Actually, the first... Um, the first hires we will make are a full-time operations person and a CEO. And that'll happen sometime this fall or the spring. But yeah, it's, that's, 
you know, you, you have to decide and look, it's not one way is not right. And the other way is not wrong. If you want it to be a lifestyle thing for you, then, you know, do, I mean, I think that's a bit myopic probably, uh, just because that well is going to run dry at some point probably. Uh, and you don't know, I mean, it's not very insulated either and things can go wrong. I mean, if you were in real estate in 2006, thought you were doing pretty well a couple years later, maybe not. Right. So, um, <clears throat> I tell everyone you cannot, you cannot overcome a horrific market. If I'd come out of the Marine Corps in 2006, I could have potentially seen the same opportunity, done the exact same thing and would have been crushed in 08. And it would not be due to anything that I did. It was just a market causation. So how do you, as somebody who's not taking the capital immediately, uh, and you're, you're, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, hedging for the future, uh, and putting all your eggs in the, in the acquisition basket, more or less, um, is, is there a way, I guess, to, uh, mitigate the risk of that because it is a risk because if you know the industry dries up or something like that happens you're kind of fucked at that point this episode of citizens brought to you by black rifle coffee company join the black rifle coffee club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door black rifle coffee company is veteran operated and supports america's military law enforcement and first responders get premium coffee delivered every month choose your favorite roast rounds and delivery schedule anytime you like Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. The best value you're going to get from Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee club. As again, you can choose the roast, whether you're like light, dark, or medium. You can choose the texture. You can choose whether you want uh, ground coffee, whether you want to grind it yourself and get whole bean, or if you use a Keurig and you want the coffee rounds and the delivery schedule with a wider uh, array of options for that. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, use the code CITIZEN, and get 20% off your first order. This episode of Citizen is also brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. For everything else, 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. If you get the uh, 40% off deal, if you use the 40% off bundle deal, you're going to get... Uh, a mattress and all your stuff, your base, your sheets, your pillows, all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month. They've got a zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months. That's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you, works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drinking bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best the mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there. 30% off everything. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. This episode is also brought to you by FirstForm. FirstForm.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. The product they really want you using is the Micro Factor. It's a complete daily nutrient pack. Now, what's in it? Antioxidants, CoQ10, great for heart health multivitamins, uh, greens and reds, which is to say fruits and veggies, then EFA, which is to say fats that you need. And then they got a probiotic in there as well. It's an easy little packet. You just dump it all in your fucking mouth and swallow, uh, probably with some liquid, preferably water. Um, they got all kinds of other great products as well. 
Uh, talking about those meat sticks, the breakfast sausage meat stick is the best thing I've ever had in my life. And of course, they have energy drinks. They've got all kinds of stuff over there. They got great protein. The best supplements on the market. If you spend over seventy-five bucks, you're going to get free shipping. So go to firstform.com forward slash drinker bros and get those deals. Yeah, I mean, I think I tell everyone there are different phases to being a successful entrepreneur. At least for me, the initial phase. You know, so many times I'm sure you get this. Oh, we really appreciate how much of a risk taker you were. And I was like, I didn't take a risk. And they said, what do you mean? I said, hey, I had no income. Almost no one wanted to hire me. The people that did wanted to make me a sales guy, mm. which would have made me suicidal. And, you know, I had to create wealth for myself. So you start from there and you're taking in other people's money. So you're really only risking time because you don't have any money to lose. You're building sweat equity. And then you get to a phase where, hey, this is working. We're building real equity here. And you really can't sell it. So you just keep growing it. Mm. And you get to a phase where there is introspection because you realize you've got all these investment bankers saying, hey, we'll pay eight, nine figures for this thing. And that's that's the turning point for me to where you start feeling pressure of, Hey, I've, I've got no money really, right? Everything is tied up in this business and you have to make a decision. Am I going to take all of my chips off the table or I'm going to take some of my chips off the table? You know, you can sell, sell a minority stake if you want to take some chips mm -hmm. off, but we really kept rolling and we just believed that the loans, we kept diversifying the types of loans. So we got into longer term loans and we thought that was kind of a hedge against you know, the real estate market collapsing because mm -hmm. now, hey, if this short-term loan does bad, they're not able to fix and flip anymore. You can put them in a rental loan. So, you know, it was a discussion, you know, I told my wife oftentimes, hey, I don't have any other means or any other investment opportunities that can bring me the same yield that this company doubling every year can bring me. So we're just going to keep rolling the dice. Yeah. But it does, it does get to a point where, <clears throat> they start making offers and it would be irresponsible to not take it to at least look right i mean i don't know if you're still at a if you're at a hundred percent growth year over year probably hang on to it and maybe go the minority route a little bit there but you know the you know typically speaking for acquisition's sake uh especially for young companies if you're if you're growing by 30 to 35% every year, that is very attractive to a potential uh, 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 buyer. And, you know, so somewhere in that range probably makes sense. I mean, it, you sh there's people out there that have done this over the last 10 years, people such as yourself that have good insight on how this works. Um, and, and, you know, <clears throat> it is, it can be difficult to tell when the right time to pop smoke is the, the, Hey, look, look at Groupon. Yeah. Right? yeah. Groupon was offered a billion dollars yeah. by Google to sell. And they said, no, we're worth more and rolled the dice. And is Groupon worth anything now? I think they sold to somebody for like 60 million, 65 okay. million, maybe something like that. So that's quite a bit different than a billion. <laughs> that's, that would be hard to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. No shit. Uh, certainly, certainly hard to swallow. And it can be difficult to tell when the right time is. I would tell you, or I would say, understand your growth trajectory. If you're doubling every year, 
I don't know that I would sell at that point. I mean, it's the growth rate is too high. If you, if it's to a, a, an insane amount and you just want to get out of it, I guess. Uh, but the other part of that is I wouldn't recommend, especially if you're not approaching retirement age and you're a man, because uh, we, as, as we've discussed so far on the show, we we just pathologically define ourselves with purpose and having something to do. Um, unless you've got a plan for whatever the next thing is, I don't know that I would completely get, get out of it in any ways. Right. Cause that's not, yeah, I mean, my, it's a recipe my for disaster. Story, my story is a little abnormal. Cause in 18, I stepped down to run for governor okay. and made it to the runoff, you know, was up 10 points the night before the, the election final and Trump came down and endorsed the other person who had endorsed him for the president. And I lost by three points. So I had stepped down as CEO when I ran and I'd come back as majority owner, but chairman. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of in a position to where I have all my eggs tied up in this one company. I believe in the company, but I'm not day to day anymore. Mm -hmm. And I felt like for me, that was a great transition period to sell. Yeah. I mean, if you've got something else to do and now that, you know, you're in the position you're in, what is it that interests you now? I mean, for me, it's always been kind of developing other people is something. And I think that's probably just being a dude, but also having been in the military, being a fucking leader, it just comes kind of like, that's something that we seek out, I think. And how does that, how does that work for you? Yeah. I mean, I love to do that. I mean, I love to help transitioning Marines find jobs and career opportunities. I don't like to make them victims, which a lot of organizations uh, feel strongly that's their purpose and, you know, helping our veterans is make them victims. But I also am heavily involved in politics still and getting quality people elected with the right core values. I think our country is at a huge deficit of leadership across the board. It's sickening to me. They serve themselves. They eat first. They don't eat last. And uh, I want to change that. And then, you know, we wrote the book. And one of the reasons we wrote the book was we thought we had a formula and a set of, co you know, a set of core values that I think can really impact everyone that reads the book. And so for the past two years, we spent a lot of time writing the book. Um, and tell me about the book. Um, <clears throat> what it, what, what, for what purpose did you write it? I guess, is it, um, I think it was, Two purposes. One, you know, mine and Top's wives, you know, they they both want us to write down all our combat stories for our kids. And, you know, the, the bigger reason why we chose the book form was we really thought we had a unique story. I think it's really cool that an Irish Catholic New York enlisted 22-year master sergeant teams with a Southern Baptist South Carolinian officer to build a finance company after serving together in Ramadi. I've never heard that story before. And I think, you know, in our country right now, we're so polarized. Everyone stresses our differences, you know, and the thing that unites the Marines, the 82nd Airborne, mm. me and top, right? It's our core values. And we had a formula for success that translated from the battlefield to business. And I think it translates to everyday lives. And that's why we wrote the book. We really did it to help people. Mm. Yeah, it is an interesting story. Like I know a lot of people uh, who have come together to do business stuff um, 
after the fact, I guess, but not people. It's rare that it's people that actually served in the same units together. You know what I mean? Uh, I happened. So at Black Rifle, Jared and Jared was my JTAG. JT was my JTAG. So he and I actually did war together for a while. Um, But the other founders of Black Rifle met up later, right? So they just met up up after their service mostly. Um, And I don't know that I've heard of of a big company where it's people that were in the same unit at the same time, like in the same platoon or company or something like that. That might be, that's definitely yeah. an, uh, an original story for sure. And I think the other thing that's unique is, you know, there are all these military books, it seems like, and a lot of them are really good and give insightful, you know, business advice. However, they've never been in business. So I think, you know, if you're going to be a military guy and instill all this wisdom on the business world, it helps to be in the business world first and gain some credibility and make sure those things translate. And, you know, that's one of the unique things about the book as well. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of packaged so-called wisdom out there that hasn't been tested. You know what I mean? Um, or it's only been tested on the battlefield and may not right. translate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, I agree with that. There, there's a lot of fluff out there, but you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a very logic driven person. Show me how, like it, <clears throat> the reason I started an MBA, I, I my master's is from Penn state. I have a master's in Homeland security. Uh, and I started an MBA there as well. And then I started looking about a month after I started, I, I was looking down the resumes of all the instructors in the MBA program. And not one of them had ever been part of a fucking successful business. I'm like, I'm not doing this. This is stupid. I'm like what, yeah. what I, I can read the books that are part of the curricula and get the same information I can from these assholes because they don't have any practical experience. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how that happens. I mean, I was literally looking up Josh Bolton's background the other day and I was like, how'd this guy become such a national security expert when he's been wrong on almost everything. And he really is a draft dodger from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he's a, he's an expert. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, and he, yeah, you're right. It's the, uh, the Gelman, uh, amnesia effect. Um, it's a psychological principle where you keep appealing to the same source of authority, even though it's been wrong over and over again. And, uh, we send, we seem to do, maybe it's his mustache. I don't know. I mean, he's super articulate, Yeah. but really examine what he's been advocating for. It's just totally wrong. And it's, it's always all these podium warriors that are the most courageous to send other people's kids to war when they're too afraid to themselves. Yeah, no shit. Um, so we're having, uh, I guess the amount of people who are getting out of the military who are combat veterans has slowed down quite a bit. It used to be something like 35,000 a month were leaving military service. Um, and it's, it's less now because there's not a whole lot of wars going on. Well, it's um, also we're not in a drawdown process. I yeah. mean, when, it, when I left the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps was 202,000 active duty. And now the Marine Corps is down to 177,000. Yeah. So, you know, we've shrunk all of the services, I think too much, but we've definitely shrunk. So there are not as many people coming out, but then we also have a huge shortage of people joining. I mean, mm-hmm. the Marine Corps was the only branch of service that made the recruiting targets last year. And that was because they pulled a lot of people up. So it'll be interesting to see if they can make it this year. But I mean, it's a national security crisis when you only got, you know, 75% 
of army recruits, you know, going into service and you're missing 25%. I mean, that's a serious, serious problem. It is a serious problem, but it, you know, and, and I, I listen to these people talking about it, these talking heads, even the people who are in charge of this stuff, recruiting command, the brass and the military, the joint chiefs and stuff, um, kind of pining about the recruitment crisis. <clears throat> and I'm not hearing any solutions that make any sense, frankly. Like it's uh, b- becoming more inclusive. Like, no, this is war. It's not a fucking, th- th- this isn't, uh, certainly the military is a, uh, a subset or, or, or uh, I guess let's, let's, what's a good word for that. It is representative of the public to some degree, right? But it is supposed to be the best of the public and not the most representative of the public, right? Like there's, you don't get, I, you don't I, get I extra points people, in war for being diverse. I, I tell people, yeah, that, that the purpose of the military is to win wars and battles. It is not to be a social experiment for woke ideology. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to improve the recruitment, start flying the flag over Iwo Jima and showing that in posters rather than getting into all of the transsexual, you know, stuff. That is not what the military's purpose is. Go tell people how you're going to be great, how you're there to serve the United States and the citizens and protect our country and people will want to join. If you say we're all extremists, and hey we're gonna come up with all these woke policies no one's gonna want to join traditionally joins the military yeah it's like uh know your audience i guess like the people the people that you're trying to i think what's happening in the military is that they've hired the bud light marketing team and you know they're making the same mistakes that bud light's doing so yeah it's really fucking stupid i mean like you there's a specific kind of person that you want to join the military, somebody who is ambitious, somebody who is naturally aggressive, um, but coherent and, and intelligent enough that their aggression can be uh, honed and tapped for the right reason. You know what I mean? And yeah. generally speaking, that kind of person comes from a particular part of the culture, and it is a very patriotic part of the culture, right? Because then you have to add in the fact that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for somebody else from time to time, and that somebody else might be the broader American community and not just an individual. Um, And I think the other thing that always made the military so special, I mean, I experienced this in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps has so much diversity. It's amazing. hmm. I mean, really has unbelievable diversity. But the Marine Corps stresses the shared core values, not the differences. You know, we used to always be united as a country because we were all Americans. And hey, we were first and foremost Americans. In the Marine Corps, we were first and foremost Marines, regardless of our race, sexual orientation, sex, whatever. And now they're getting away from that and they're stressing, hey, you're all different. You don't share anything in common. However, we're going to be part of this organization together. And that's just people don't want to be a part of an organization that has no shared values. Well, what would you say are the shared values right now? Because I'm not sure that we agree on that. I'm not sure there are shared values between. Well, I think the people that traditionally go into the military, they love their country. They want to serve others and they're team players and they have a chip on their shoulder and they want to prove something. They want to see how tough they are and they have grit and determination to keep going when times are tough. Those are the people we want in our military, not the people that 
Bud Light's advertising for. I really do worry about if there is some new armed conflict, what that's going to look like, to be honest. Because, you know, I, I mentioned it before, but we have record numbers of active duty suicides in a time when actual, like real combat deployments to hot zones, pe people still get deployed uh, to do, you know, green on blue training and our blue on green training and, and uh, security force stuff and things like that. And obviously Marine Corps are on Muse and shit, but it isn't like it was in the middle 2000s. You know, there, there aren't, we don't I have 130,000 troops deployed to an active war zone right now. It's not like that. I think, I think we're hurt personnel, but I think one of the bigger issues, national security that no one's talking about is we are lacking in ships. I mean, the Marine Corps couldn't respond to the uh, earthquake in Turkey because there weren't enough amphibious assault via uh, assault ships, mm. you know, where the Muse that you mentioned that I served on the two, two Mew, they're not enough amphibious assault ships out there to take Marines, even to an earthquake. Well, what about evacuating, you know, all of the U S personnel, if we go to war with China over Taiwan, you know, we're not going to have enough ships. We have given 13 years worth of javelins to Ukraine, but we're not replacing those in increasing production. You know, Biden came out the other day and said, hey, there's a short, we have a shortage of artillery shells, 155 shells, but we're not increasing productivity to make up for that. So like, what are we doing to strengthen our military and provide for our national security? It's just, it's crazy to me. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. And I don't understand why people don't want a strong military so we don't have to use it. Right. Um, so what do you see as some kind of solution to this? Cause it seems like it's only been trending in one direction for the past five years or so. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you know, going on podcasts like yours and getting the word out to average Americans, average Americans just don't know this. And I really firmly believe that if they know that, then they're going to start asking their congressman at the town hall meeting. And if people start worried about getting elected again, then things start changing. So, you know, we as citizens have got to push back and say, hey, why aren't you doing these things and let the public know? Yeah. Um, back to the business thing. One of the topics in your book right at the very beginning is this idea of um, f like foundational entrepreneurship and leadership in business, um, I guess, based in the things that you guys learned while uh, leading in the military. And one of the things you talk about is throwing out the traditional playbook. Explain to me in American business or in American leadership in the business community, what does that mean? What is the traditional? First, give me what the traditional playbook is, I guess. The traditional playbook is exactly this. We do everything because we've always done it that way. That That's it. Or they'll phrase it differently and say, we're doing everything that we're doing because that's the industry standard or that's the way everything's done in the industry. They are so caught in this box that they can't break out and think logically. And it was like, you know, one of the lessons we learned in Ramadi was change up tactics. Actually analyze why you're doing something. You know, yeah. the, we give this example in the book. Hey, Marine Corps doctrine is if it's a flat roof, send four Marines up to the top of the roof and have them get overwatch. Hmm. That sounds logical, right? But when you have two Chechen snipers who are wiping out Marines who are on roofs, it's probably good to rethink that policy. And in the business world, 
they just don't rethink anything. And that's why the entrepreneurs come out and are super successful. They see a problem. They see a simple solution to solve it. And they build a company around that solution. And the bigger the problem, the more simplistic the solution, the bigger the company will be. And, you know, like we came from the mortgage industry. One of the norms in the mortgage industry was hire only experienced underwriters. Okay. Why do I want an underwriter that contributed to the financial crisis and is a job hopper? Right. I want someone that is a killer mm. who is a team player, who's smart, who's articulate, who shows up to work on time. You know, there are all these core values and core competencies. And then we do just like the military. We we trained them like it's easy to train someone to be an underwriter. And one of the stories that we tell in the book was we had brought this huge hedge fund down, former Goldman guys. And they were going to invest a ton of money. We go to this celebratory dinner. And at the dinner, they said, hey, we love your company. You originate awesome loans, but we're not going to invest because you don't have any experienced underwriters. And I said, hey, you realize that we have less than a 1% foreclosure rate. Our loans only perform. Yeah, but that's just not, we just can't get behind that. We don't, six weeks later, those guys went and toured across the country, saw all of our competitors and came back in and said we were wrong and wrote a huge check then and said, hey, you're doing it the right way. And one year later, we were at a conference and they said, one of the things we love about Lima One Capital is their unique hiring practices. And, you know, if you show them, you know, to think outside the box, you can eventually, you're going to face a lot of pushback initially, but mm -hmm. if your way works, <clears throat> The people are going to come around and that's just one of the examples that we did to do it. Yeah. It's a good lesson to learn in business. Never fall in love with plan A. People make that mistake a lot. They, they, it's like a captain going down with the ship, especially if it's, especially amongst founder groups, unfortunately, uh, guys that are, are super romantic about staying CEO in their company, even when the company maybe gets bigger than their ability to be the CEO of it. I've seen some yeah. uh, some things not some sometimes they don't fail necessarily, but they definitely don't grow at the rate they they should. Um, and, you know, it's like <clears throat> you got to get you got to use the same kind of um, one of I, I think a superpower for particularly for combat veterans is the ability to be calm when everybody else is not calm. Right. I think that is a legit superpower because and I've experienced it in my civilian life as well. Something crazy happens or it's in business. Something, everything's looking rough and it's like, all right, cool. Freaking out about it's not going to solve anything, you know? So let's see what the problem is and respond in a logical way to the problem. And people are like, how do you do that? And it's like, it's, it really is just experience. You know what I mean? Uh, that's the kind of experience that I like to hire for. I don't give a shit. Uh, if so, you can teach somebody to build a widget, you know, that's the easy part. The hard part is finding the right kind of culture fit and personality. So, um, but most people don't do that. I mean, most people in the financial services industry. I mean, one of the pushbacks I got also was, hey, your COO doesn't have a college degree. And I'm like, he's decorated for valor multiple times. He led the school of infantry for the Marine Corps. Like, what else do you want? Oh, he didn't go to a four-year college, so he's not qualified to run. Well, it just looks bad. And, you know, there again, it's like, well, we don't really care what it looks like. We just care about performance. 
And I think all of these companies would open up a world, a much bigger world of applicants if they hired people based on what you talked about and what we talk about is core values and the right experiences, mm -hmm. not necessarily the right degrees and industry experience. Yeah. And that's what um, you, you, you kind of briefly mentioned it before. Um, but that, that is what market disruption really looks like the, a lot of the bigger companies tried to get in on the trend of market disrupt. If I hear the word disrupt in terms of business one more time, I'm going to fucking stab somebody, but, uh, it is that, that is the true market disruption. It's like, you look around, it's like, all right, this plan's not working. We're going to try something else. And yeah, you've got the temerity to try it. I guess it's a risk to some degree. But, you know, you, you made the point before, when 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 there's no opportunity, going out and looking for opportunity is not a risk. That's not, that's not you're not risking anything because you don't have anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the ability to surround yourself, like the pressure in chaos and chaos and being able to perform calmly in that, in that environment is one person being able to do it is nice, but multiple people being able to handle that, being able to sit in a boardroom or in your fucking C-suite uh, and have reasonable conversations with people when shit's going rough or when, when there's a big challenge ahead or something like that is invaluable. I've been in, I've been in military units where the leader was, uh, uh, overreactive and I've, and, and w with one good guy, one bad guy, sometimes I've had them with both good guys. It's a, it's a market difference when everybody's kind of on that same page. I just remember multiple times where something had gone wrong, loan, a loan wasn't performing. There was an issue with whatever. And John Thompson, my co-author would just say, Hey, calm down. You're not getting shot at. You're not getting blown up and no one's bleeding out take a deep breath. And I think, you know, that's one of the great lessons from combat. And that's why I believe so much in post-traumatic growth rather than PTSD. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things you hit early in the book is leadership when the shooting stops, right? It's like, uh, and, and there's a couple of things. One is what you just mentioned there, but it's also, you know, when we go through a period of stress like that, and then we come out victorious, there there is, I do believe what Ray Dalio says about celebrating victories. You should definitely enjoy the work you're doing and take the time to be like, hey, we did a good job. But, uh, you know, resting on your laurels, the market's just too dynamic for that. And not, I don't mean just the finance market. All markets these days are just, they pivot so quickly. You don't have time to sit around and, and, and you know, fall in love with your own success. You know, it's, yeah. it's, you have to keep moving. Celebrate for a couple of days, move on, try to try to get past the next plateau and keep climbing. And take another, uh, like find the next challenge or the next risk, I guess. It's funny how all of these business principles are uh, parallel to, you know, the way that you should live your life. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not dissimilar strategically uh, when you've gone through. I, I remember when I was getting out of the military, I just wanted to rest for a while and I, I to, to some degree, that makes sense. But uh, I, I definitely fell into the same trap that a lot of dudes did, which is I rested for too long and then I had to refine myself again. If I, if I were able to do it again, I definitely would have found something to occupy my time in a more, uh, not risk-driven, but definitely goal-driven 
way than I did. Instead of just like, all right, I'm going to take some time and go to school and figure some shit out. I should have just fucking jumped headlong into something, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge I have every day now. It was a challenge since I sold the company. You know, it's like, hey, what do I want to invest my time in? And, you know, and on one side, I joined too many boards trying to have impact. I did too many different things that, although are worthy causes, they're not my passions. And I think, you know, it's a, it's, it's a struggle still, but, uh, you know, I would say follow your passions and keep having purpose in that regard, as opposed to filling your time, just being busy. Yeah. Just being busy. Uh, there needs to be a, 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 you need to have an A and a C and you need to figure out your pathway, which is B, right? But if you just have A and B, like I, I know what I like and I know where I want to go, uh, uh, or I know how I want to do it. That's not a full plan, right? Like there has to be a desired end state, I guess, as we say in the military, there's what, what is our desired end state from this operation? And it helps yeah. to be very specific too. Like I want to accomplish this specific thing uh, and then work backwards from there to plan for it. Otherwise, I don't know. I feel like you, people get lost in the grind a little bit and they wake up a couple of years later, like, man, I've been working my ass off and I haven't made any progress at all. It's like, okay, well, where, which direction were you going? There's this old yeah. saying, it's like, <clears throat> it doesn't matter how big the steps you take are as long as they're in the right direction. You know what I mean? But if you don't know precisely where you're going, that's exactly where you're going to get nowhere. Yeah. What's the mission? What's commander's intent? And then how do I get there? There's a reason that businesses back in the day, even the mafia is set up in a paramilitary structure, right? Because it fucking works. I don't understand why more people don't make use of this stuff. But I guess now they're able to because, you know, there's some books out there about not business, but general leadership, like extreme ownership from Jocko. And now there's more people like yourself who are getting involved in, in I guess, uh, in my, from my perspective, giving back to the community by writing down all your experiences here and giving people some strategic outlook on how they can go from where they are now to where you are now. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think it can impact everyone's life. We have a chapter called be blunt and direct, you know, it just seems so common sense to, to be that way, but rarely do you ever know how, how you stand with other people. And, you know, we found that just blunt direct communication empowers people and lets them know where they stand and gives them so much freedom and frees freeze all their fears of not knowing where they stand with an individual. Yeah, that's a big thing, man. And nobody likes <clears throat> nobody likes uh being unsure of things. It's very it, it produces a lot of anxiety to not know uh uh if things are going to be okay, if to not know well what we're going to do tomorrow, like what's what's going on tomorrow. I think that it produces a lot of anxiety for people. <clears throat> and then when you I apply mean, that to the Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, my COO always said, if an employee goes into an employee review and is shocked by anything or surprised, then we have failed mm. to communicate directly to that person the entire previous period. Yeah, certainly that is the case. And it, it, I was going to say, especially in those interpersonal relationships in a, in a leader subordinate or even in a group. Um, <clears throat> hey, you know, kids, just be honest yeah. with them, you know. I got a seven, a five and a three-year-old. No one is more blunt than our children. They don't know how to filter anything. And, you know, if they get smoke checked in a soccer game, 10 to nothing, they're going to know that you're lying to them when you say good game, mm. you know, right? 
say, hey, you guys got crushed, but I really appreciate your effort. You kept fighting. That's what's important. I appreciate that a lot more than, hey, good game. It doesn't matter, mm. right? Like Everyone gets a trophy today. Yeah, That's, well, I mean, if it didn't matter, then why'd we fucking do it, you know? Not how we grew up, right? No, it's definitely not. Uh, no, when I, when I lost in Little League baseball games, I was so mad. I would fucking just sit there shaking, crying like a, fuck you. Uh, I, I was inconsolable. I hate fucking losing. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's like if it do, if it didn't matter, if the outcome didn't matter, then why'd we fucking do it? Yeah. And I think we as a culture have lost, and I think that's a big part of it. We've lost the connection between effort and outcome, right? Um, like we expect a certain outcome now, uh, irrespective of our fucking effort. And that's dumb. Obviously, that's not how the world works, but it is. It also causes people quite a bit of mental anguish. I think it's, well, I think it's gone, hard. We've gone from equal opportunity to equal outcomes, which they're now calling equity. Yeah, right? yeah, it's dumb. Everyone deserves the same equity. Mm. Well, that's not that's not how it's not what America was founded on. No, no, and, and it doesn't make any sense either. I mean, it's fucking stupid. But <clears throat> that's a hey, we're, get, we're getting short on time. Can I tell one story? Yeah, go ahead. So we end the book on this chapter. It's called "Lead Lead from the Front." And it's about one of my Marines, Michael Ouellette, who was a corporal. He was in the Nauzad district of Afghanistan in 2009. And the story has never really been told before. But it's about his combat engagement that won him the Navy Cross and cost him his life, but saved all of his Marines. He was out leading a patrol, Nauzad district. He was ambushed, hit an IED, lost both of his legs. They put tourniquets on him. Um, the Taliban reinforced the positions. He was only out there with a squad of his Marines leading him. And 50 to 100 Taliban fighters were attacking him. He stayed in the fight, called on his own nine-line casualty report, called on uh, Cobras to come in and provide air support. The Cobras, they were so danger close to the enemy the, the Cobras weren't even allowed to fire their Hellfire missiles. They could only use guns. But he walked them on target, took out the Taliban, and got all of his Marines back and refused to be evacuated until he was the last man out. And he died. He bled out on the chopper. But uh, we end the book, you know, as a tribute to him. And there's so many Marines historically, so many of our veterans, regardless of service, that have fought and shown that valor mm -hmm. but that's just a very special story that i kind of commemorate and we commemorate in the book and i love to share that story because i want people to know who's on that wall protecting us and why they're so valuable and why the ones that make it home they're not victims we need to empower them they're the leaders that we need in our businesses and our charities and our churches you know those are the ones that we need leading the country all of them yeah. like my lit. Yeah, every every problem we have in the United States and, and the West more generally, but let's all, all the problems we have in America right now, uh, the solution is sitting right in front of us. You know what I mean? Um, and we spent quite a bit of money training them and preparing them for this uh, this eventuality as well. So hopefully we'll <clears throat> you know start to utilize those resources a little more responsibly, to be honest. Um, the book is called Lead like a Marine, run towards a challenge, assemble your fire team, win your next battle. It is available now. Um, uh, uh, John Warren and John Thompson are the authors. 
Uh, thank you for coming today. Tell everybody else if, if there's any more information you want to put out or where to find it, the book or, or anything like that, or your other organizations, uh, go ahead and let us know. The, uh, the, the book's being sold at all the outlets. You can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can go to our website, leadlikeamarine.com. We've got a lot of interesting photos, videos from our deployments, from our time in business. And uh, so lead like a Marine. Sweet, man. Well, thanks for coming today. I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, hopefully some people will, will check into this uh, and, and, you know, repeat your success. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. Yes, sir. Anytime. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen.